Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 87. Last week, the crux of the message that we looked at and taught about was when Jesus had crossed over the Jordan again, and in, this is in Luke chapter 14, one particular Sabbath, he was dining with the Pharisees, and you have all of these different instances that are relating to this initial situation where there was this man who had dropsy and Jesus is using this guy as kind of an example to ask the Pharisees, like, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, And then he, he goes off on examples of like when you have cattle or livestock that are ailing or hurting on the Sabbath, you will do that. But, you know, how much more important is it for a human being and created in God's image for you to alleviate their suffering and you know they couldn't answer it they they either refused to or they were stupefied at the wisdom that he was showcasing which was great which was convicting Um, and then we moved on to slightly different parables about it seemed to be alluding to that Pharisees were bickering and fighting amongst one another at this gathering on the sabbath at whoever's house this was at who was going to get the seat of honor among jesus and their fellow colleagues and jesus is responding showcasing that the his kingdom is a kingdom of the upside down that you should be going out of your way to humbling yourself in order to exalt someone else and instead of inviting your closest friends and your relatives, those that you know and feel comfortable with, you should go out and invite the the estranged, the poor, the afflicted, the suffering. Uh, bring those people into your life to give them a taste of the kingdom as well. Yeah, and it's uh, the, the sort of his final point in all of that was that they can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God repays. That was sort of his final point, and that's important just so we can kind of get our head in the game and we know where to pick up. So we're staying in Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 through 24. It's kind of long, but it's one single story, so we'll just do that. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, 
I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right. Now, I we've read the whole story and, and we've got that in our head, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning of it and just notice something really important here. Because we talked a little bit, like in the last episode, how, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not necessary that we look at these Pharisees as trying to trap him or that there's some, you know, big contention going on or whatever. It could be that they're really interested in him and just kind of dumbfounded or whatever. I mean, we don't know, we don't know, but this is great. It starts out with a guy who actually, he, he seems to get it. And, and it's, it's, I think, more proof that there is no real antagonism here between Jesus and this group, the, the man that invited him in this group. This attendee, whoever he is, he, he, he gets it, and it, what he's saying is that we, the truly humble, may be invited to a banquet given by God in the kingdom. And then how blessed are those invited to that? So it's like he sees the picture and he's rejoicing in it. It it sounds great. So just as God is willing to invite us, we must imitate him by inviting the truly humble also. And it's, so, I mean, it's cool. Again, not a lot of antagonism. The guy's joining in. He sees what Jesus is talking about, and he's going, yes, how blessed, eating bread in the kingdom. But far be it from Jesus to let a teaching moment go by. And Jesus, rather than addressing it just directly, he tells a parable. It's a story parable. And so let's go ahead and walk through it, and we'll kind of, you know, define who's who and that kind of stuff. So you got a guy. And in this case, we're going to say that represents God. And this, he has a banquet, and we're going to say that that represents the kingdom. And he invites a bunch of people. Now, this is where people get a little bit off on this. Let, let's see if we can bring this back in, corral it in. This bunch of people is Israel, the entire nation of Israel, generally speaking. But in this context, it seems to be those who, you know, either are or let's just say think that they are the faithful and loyal ones of this generation. So that's the bunch of people that are invited. Now, they're invited by, or, you know, like they they get called on or whatever, by the servant. So that's going to represent Jesus, the Messiah. Then when the banquet is ready, and we could say that the kingdom is at hand, kind of seeing how that fits with the gospel story, right? They refuse to come. 
for various reasons. Now, on one hand, we could look at this and go, oh my, that is a terribly rude social faux pas. All right? True, but it's also a devastating error in relation to God. And, and basically what we're saying, that what this parable, the picture that it's drawing is, they refuse to repent because they are more interested in earthly things. And so the guy throwing the banquet, and remember that represents God, is angry. And he brings in a bunch of people of humble circumstance. Now, this is also important. We're still talking about Israel. But now it's the sinners and the outcasts of this generation, all of those people. They aren't, I I guess we could say in some sense, they're not hindered by earthly things, certainly not hindered by wealth, possessions, whatever, for the most part, unless you're talking about tax collectors. But anyway, they quickly accept the invitation. However, there's still room. I mean, they went and invited all these new people. A bunch of them came in, but there's a lot of room left over. So he sends the guy out again. He brings in a bunch of people from everywhere, the highways and the hedges. Now that represents the Gentiles, potential Gentile believers, which is interesting because Jesus doesn't talk about that too awful much. But they were foreign. They were strangers. They had to be compelled to come. And then he makes this declaration about the original invitees, and and presumably, again, those are the, the righteous ones of the generation. But as it turns out, they're not, they're not completely righteous, and the, the big, big problem they have isn't that they were, you know, uh, let's say, falsely righteous. We shouldn't look at it that way. The big, big problem is that they were unbelieving. They were not accepting God's fulfilled promise. They weren't accepting God's Messiah. But anyway, he declares those original invitees wouldn't be allowed in. And we see that a lot through the Gospels. There's this idea that Jesus's generation, the ones that did not receive him, buddy, they are going to suffer. It's not going to be good for them. But that is, that's, that's a very special case, and that's not something where we should you know, be thinking that all of Israel is included. It's just, it's the ones who don't accept him. So, and his generation. But now, okay, I, I want to take you back though. Remember, he's saying this to the guy who was, you know, kind of getting what Jesus was talking about. He was joining in to Jesus's teaching. See, Jesus seems to have perceived that he was getting the whole picture and Jesus is helping him see that, you know what? A bunch of Israel is rejecting God and his Messiah, and there's there's just going to be grave consequences. So Jesus is offering a warning that even, uh, I, I, I think, their behavior on that very day, right there in that house where Jesus was having, you know, Sabbath dinner with him, whatever, he was showing that they had their priorities out of whack because... They didn't like him, you know, dealing with the sinners and whatnot. But real quick, I just want to add this. I want to talk about what the text is not saying. The text is not saying that God is rejecting Israel. It's not saying that God is replacing Israel with, you know, Christians or the church. Now, that generation 
of Israel. May have blown it. Okay, yeah, seems right. Israel, the entire nation, may be living even today in an extended exile because of what happened while Jesus was here. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I go along with that. If, as Paul writes it, they may be partially hardened, unable even to see the truth. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. But in spite of all that, they have not been replaced. And Samuel, we say this a lot, we have been grafted in. Well, Samuel, grafted into what? Into the nation or commonwealth of Israel. Yeah, yeah. If God replaced Israel with us, what the heck are we grafted into? It's, it's important to see that part of the story. And, and this is also important. Just, I mean, all you got to do is read your Bible and think a little bit with your brain. For God to just dump Israel entirely would make God unfaithful and a liar. And that's simply unacceptable. I mean, we know those things are not true. God is faithful, and he's incapable of lying. And so, when God makes eternal covenants with Israel, well, guess what? They're eternal. Now, we can talk about the, the details of that word eternal. It's, it's more like age-long, meaning until this earth passes away. It's not like infinity, as we often imagine it. But it's just until there's a new age, a new heaven, a new earth, till the world to come. But think about it for a second. Just, just think. If we are willing to accept that God could just dump Israel and take on the church in its place, well, when you get, and I don't know, you can fill in the blank, maybe, maybe you think that the, the Mormons or uh, who's another one? What's the sure. Jehovah's Witness? Or, yeah. yeah. So when they come along and say, hey, guess what? We're the new chosen people because the church, you know, they blew it. They're apostate. Well, one thing you can't do is throw up a reasoning that says, oh, that, that can't be so because God is faithful. God is true. Well, if you're saying that he dumped Israel, why can't he dump you? It's, it's silly, and you, you have to be consistent in understanding that God is faithful. God is not a liar. When he made eternal covenants, they were, in fact, eternal. So, anyway, just thought I'd throw that in there. I don't know if I sounded angry or not. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I just get a little worked up because people, you know, they're like messing up the story. Yeah, well, and... Truth be told, like it kind of doesn't matter whether you sound angry or not, because you're you're saying the very words of God that He had said Himself in the Torah. And I'm pretty sure yeah. I've referenced this verse before, but in the Book of Numbers, twenty third chapter, the nineteenth verse, this is describing God. Um, God is not man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. He has said it, and will he not do it? Yes. Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So if he, if he called Israel to be his people to bless all nations, that's going to be true from beginning until the end of his story. Yeah. And it, the important thing also is that God replacing Israel ruins the story. God not replacing Israel 
does not ruin the story. And if you're looking at the thing as one giant whole thing that has to make sense, you gotta let that go. Yeah. Anyway, anything else on that section, Samuel? Because that was kind of a good one. Um. Yeah, actually. So you, you, we had this take on Jesus is not saying that Israel's being replaced. Could we also think about this section? I know that some people use this as a call to evangelism to say, you know, go out to everybody that you know, whether you know them or not, go out to the street corners, to the stores, to the campuses, and proclaim the gospel so that they may be invited in. Now, I'm not saying that there's not good in that and there's not truth in that and that people can't do that, but contextually, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling with seeing that in here. I feel like Jesus is potentially saying instead, like, to the Pharisees, like, guys, you have got more than most of the entire nation of Israel has at your disposal to to know who God is and discover and identify who the Messiah is. Like, you made it up through the ranks in the educational system of the Torah to become the elite of the elite. You have access to, you know, the scrolls, the Torah, uh, the, the oral teachings that a lot of common people just would be learning from, you know, discussing it, hearsay from one person to another. And Jesus is saying, like, if you're not getting it and you have all these resources, then God's going to go to your to like our people, to those who don't have those resources. And you know what? They're going to accept it. And not only that, not only are they going to accept it, this word is going to go out beyond the boundaries of Israel and it's going to go to the the people that you actually hate, the people that you think don't belong in this story. Mm. They're going to accept it too. Like to me, thematically, that sounds more in line with Jesus's story here, rather than it being a call that we need to go talk to every stranger, you know, possible and share, you know, a gospel illustration with them and you know give them a opportunity to respond. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're you're touching on. A little bit that we've we've discussed about the parables in the past, and it's good to say it again. Parables really have, generally speaking, one major point, and and you sort of walk into dangerous territory when you go outside that. That the the danger is uh, imagining that the parable is saying something that it's not really saying, and so I think you're you're on to the right the the right idea here by saying. Look, and I'm just going to say it a different way, just to whatever get the the mind churning a little bit. This is this is much more along the lines of, you know, what it doesn't matter about your bloodline if if you got this idea in your head that you are Israel by blood and therefore you're in, and and that's similar to oh, you think because you're keeping the commandments in a in a literal sense, you know, instead of like the the real spirit behind the laws or whatever. Uh, you can plug in a number of little things here. The point is that the ones who think that they're in may or may not be and God is looking for those who are actually willing to respond to him. The real point is repentance. The the ones who are willing to repent and and submit to God, those are the ones who are in and the others are not. So 
Now, now to get back to your question about evangelism, you know what? I can read this, and I can go, yeah, okay, I could see how someone, you know, thinking along the lines of evangelism might look at this and and think that, oh yeah, look, um, we, we're to go into the whole world. Well, that's true, but I, I know, I, I believe, I know what you're referring to, Samuel, at least in the general sense, and people do take it too far and. And to look at this parable and say that it is about evangelism, okay, I think that would be incorrect or a mistake. For somebody to just look at it and go, yeah, but, you know, speaking of evangelism and reading this, you know, there's some interesting things here. And, you know, just finding little nuggets. Or, I mean, that's great. You know, whatever. Go for it. But yeah, I, 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 all of that, just to say, I think I'm agreeing with you you're taking it too far if you're reading evangelism into this. What you should be seeing is repentance and acceptance from God, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So, interestingly, we've been talking, we're at this banquet or or whatever, Jesus got invited to this dinner, and uh, like the very next work, uh, verse we... (laughs) The very next verse we read... Seems like we're just in a whole new world. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. It says this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So, again, as as I said, it's a quick change. Dinner's over. We're back out with the crowds. And, okay, just brief side note. Luke says that the crowds are accompanying him. And you've just got to imagine this guy's life day in and day out. It's got to be tiresome. It really does. But another important thing to remember is that not all followers are disciples. People could have many different motivations for following him around. And that's important because I think there's no difference between the people of this day and the people in the church today and all of that. The thing is, it's a narrow road. There are few who find it. So if you want to be a true disciple, real disciple, serious disciple of Jesus, apparently, Samuel, you need to hate everybody, (laughs) including your family and yourself. Make sense? Yep, next topic. (laughs) (laughs) What? Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. What? The text says that. I mean, it says if you don't, you can't even be his disciple. I mean, should we be taking this literally, Samuel? I sure hope not. <laughs> and of course not. And here's the thing. If we were somewhere, I don't know, if we were a group at a house sitting out on the porch, if we were in a, a, a church or a school or just any sort of event, if it was any ordinary person speaking in any ordinary circumstances of our life and they talked in this way, we'd know exactly what they meant. He's just saying you got to love Jesus, you got to love God over and above everything else. Even 
the most precious things in your life, even the most precious people in your life. It's a priority thing. It's a preference thing. And we've said it before. This is a common Hebrew idiom. Remember back with Jacob. Do you remember he had a couple wives there, Samuel? And what, what's the, the, the verse we're thinking about right here? Uh, he, he loved Rachel and he hated Leah. Yeah. And again, did he hate her the way we hate people today? The way we describe it? No. No. Just means he preferred Rachel. That's all. So, it's in the scripture. It's right here in the book. I mean, in this case, it's even in red letters. So, I'm kind of trying to be empathetic here. It, it It's easy, I think, for people to misunderstand. I mean, they're looking at this book, this holy, awesome book. It's Jesus speaking, after all. I mean, shouldn't every word from his mouth be cherished? And isn't it impossible for him to lie, too? I mean, what's going on here? Shouldn't he just say what he means and mean what he says? Well, yeah, except Jesus is a real human person, and he's living in a real time and in a real place with a real culture, and he's behaving in a manner that was completely normal for then and there. He spoke the way they spoke. He's not trying to confuse anyone. He's simply emphasizing how a true disciple acts only one way, as if God and Jesus is truly supreme. He's preferred above all else, prioritized above all else. And it doesn't matter. Things, people, he's above all else. Now, it may not be you know, literal, literal, but we, we know what he's communicating, and it is a high calling. Ooh, I like that phrase. We should have been saying that all along. That's <laughs> <laughs> like some, some deja vu's going on right now. Yeah. No doubt. But, and as if that wasn't enough, Jesus wasn't even done. He goes on, you can't be a disciple unless you voluntarily submit for crucifixion, which I know Jesus hasn't actually gone there yet, but at this time, it's a popular symbol of death. So, again, Samuel, is this literal does he want you to go, like, turn yourself in and go, uh, crucifixion for me? No, no way. No, no, of course not. What Jesus is saying is that you must be willing and you must willingly lay down your life and live a life in imitation of him. Now, there's a couple different scenarios here. So let, let's talk about us today first. Every hope every dream, every desire, etc., it all now plays second fiddle to God and His ways and His plans. Now, does this mean that no hope or dream or desire of yours will ever come to pass? Well, no. It just means that you need to get your head in a place, your heart in a place. You need to be okay with that as an actual real possibility. You, in a sense, you are figuratively crucifying yourself. You no longer live. 
And, and you know, if, if you're not living, you could say that you no longer have any hopes or dreams or desires. Remember, Paul tells us that you are also figuratively resurrected, and you live a new life as a new creature, Christ living through you. And again, that may not be literal, but it's a high, high calling. Now, Samuel, if you were alive when Jesus was, and if you were following Jesus and you wanted to do what he said and all that kind of stuff, is it possible that you would have been possibly setting yourself up for crucifixion yourself? Of course. Yeah. So it, 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 it's not as if it couldn't have a literal outcome. In fact, it did for some of the apostles. We know this. But it's, it's not to say that Jesus wants every single follower of his to just immediately submit themselves for death. <laughs> that would be kind of a, 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 an oxymoronic way of spreading the word of life, if you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying. So I, I'm just saying, it, there's more than one side to this. But for us, we have to understand it's that laying down of our lives, willingly putting his will above our own in every, everything. That's hard. That <laughs> if people are feeling the tension, it's like, that doesn't sound very easy to do. I, I would say that m- most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are feeling similar things right now in yeah. hearing that. Yeah. The important thing is, okay, let's say it this way. It sounds impossible. So here's the question. Should you then not try? I mean, doesn't isn't there some verse in the Bible that says all things are possible with God? <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. It's if you're using it it seems impossible to me. If you're using that as an excuse, I you know, I don't know what to tell you. I think I think uh you're in a strange and possibly bad place. If you're if you're looking at it saying, "Look, I may fail, but I am going to give it my all. Well, that's just the faithfulness and the loyalty and everything else that we've always been talking about. We've never tried on the podcast to say that you are expected to be perfect, but at the same time, your life should be spent pursuing it. You, you just need to go after righteousness. You need to be in the image of God here on the earth. You need to be his hands, his feet, his body on the earth. That's all we're talking about here. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big deal. Big deal. Yeah. Before we move on, I did want to ask one more thing. Um, yeah. In verse 27, his phrase that he uses, like, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. Um, contextually, the audience that would have been hearing that and their culture would would that have been a phrase that would have been used metaphorically? I mean, I know that Jesus could be meaning this literally too, but like it seems like he's he's using it as a figure of speech to mean like what are you willing to die on? Like what hills are you going to die on in order to follow me? Was that? Do you know if that was used in that culture, it, or is it a, an example like in John six where Jesus says something as like on the surface as ridiculous as like if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, like you can't be a part of me. And the people were like, (laughs) what is going on? Why is he saying that? So help me out here. Yeah. 
Well, this this is an interesting one, uh, and the, uh, let's just be clear. I don't know the answer to your question, but let me at least say these things. It, I am totally sympathetic to a person who reads this and sees in it following Christ to to death by crucifixion, because that's what happened. I mean, listen to that. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me— Right, follow him, imitate him, let his life be. Ge- okay, I get it, I see it, and yet we still have to remember, but that hasn't happened yet. Even if he said that and meant it, nobody would have any clue what he was talking about. So, not entirely helpful, if you know what I'm saying. But the other way to look at this is just the idea of "come after me." Is uh, what what was the popular thing? Like when a when a rabbi, a teacher, was calling a disciple. Remember when we were gathering the apostles? Mm-hmm. What was the? Do you remember the phrase we were looking for? Uh, come and see. Come and learn. Right. Yeah. And then follow. Follow me. me. Yeah. Right. The, and and so this is that same kind of idea. You got to bear your own cross and come after me. Bear your own cross. I think that definitely was was. Uh, uh, metaphoric or or uh, figurative or idiomatic something, just saying, hey, whoever isn't willing to die or lay down his life, I think that part is, and come after me uh, is is. Uh, I think we should take that as imitate me, follow me, be. You, you can't be a disciple unless you actually leave behind your current life. And that was that was the very image of discipleship in that day. I mean, you left your family, you went and lived with your rabbi, and you actually preferred or prioritized your your teacher, your rabbi, your master above even your own father. So, we see all that in here because what were we just talking about? Prioritizing Jesus and God above father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, everything. So, it's all there. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting verse, but I, I think it's uh, in context. It's just saying literally, uh, not literally. It is saying in yet another way what he's already been saying. Yeah, to make sense. Yeah, I just I just wanted to bring it up because that phrase gets used so much in our culture now today. Like just in everyday conversation, when someone's going through something, even if they're not religious, the phrase gets brought up. Like. Man, you, like you just got to keep going. Like you just got to pick up that cross and just keep pushing along in life. But in my head, it's like I don't know if that would have been a phrase that used like that in first century Judaism, especially with the relationship with Rome and their kind of occupation and tyranny over the Jews. Like I, I just don't see that as a commonly used phrase. Yeah, yeah. The only real common part is that cross, death on a cross was super familiar. Everybody knew that. Everybody had seen it, witnessed it, whatever. So that part of it, the part where the cross represents death, that for sure would have been very common. So, yeah. Well, let's go on. Maybe he'll explain, and you never know, we might learn something. Let's see what happens. Uh, verse. Uh, we're still in Luke 14. We're going to look at verses 28 through 33. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, these, Samuel, these are interesting and a little, I'm not sure, so, sort of intuitive, sort of counterintuitive, whatever. So, it, let's see. After Jesus has stressed this idea of a high calling, this idea that we're supposed to prefer and prioritize God and Jesus above everything else, and you're supposed to count your life over and only live for him, Jesus gives us what I think is an even better picture of what he's saying. He tells us two stories that are about counting the cost. The basic message is, don't start something unless you can finish it. So in our first story, it's about building a tower. And Jesus, I mean, you know, he's just presenting it like common everyday wisdom that a man and and now let's say, since we'll treat it kind of parable-like, this man would represent a potential disciple. So a man should know the full cost, and we're going to say the, the cost of discipleship or the requirements of discipleship, okay? A man should know the full, the full cost before starting to build the tower. And let's call that becoming a disciple. So he should know that he has all that is required to complete it even before he starts. Now, don't anybody out there hear us saying, oh, you have to be perfect before God will accept you. No, what we're talking about is you need to have your mindset on faithfulness and loyalty. That's what we're talking about. But in the practical contents of context of actually building a tower or something, uh, I'm sure we could all agree, hey, you know what? Counting the cost in advance, well, that's probably a really good idea. You want to be able to finish the thing that you start. And then the second story, this is the one where it's, I don't know, it depends on how you read it, it kind of gets a little counterintuitive. It's a story about now a king. Okay, so in this case, that king represents a potential disciple. And he's going to go to war, and that is, you know, the, the idea of becoming a disciple. Except in this case, there are two options. You've got war or peace. And I'm going to say that peace is not becoming a disciple. It's peace with the world, if we could say it that way. So, knowing the cost involved, deciding which one of those was better. Can I win if I choose war? I mean, it could cost me everything right? So it's that idea of counting the cost. And if not, well, maybe I should just choose peace, that is making peace with the world. Are you willing to sacrifice all? Now, in the practical context of going to war, okay, that's a lot easier for us to agree. Yeah, counting the cost is a good thing, but we have to remember the context. This is all about being his disciple. And this is something you're not going to hear preached very often. 
Before a person decides to become a disciple of Jesus, they should count the cost. Now, Samuel, how many times have you ever been in a church or anywhere else and somebody said, I want to get born again, and somebody said, you just hold on there a second. Let's make sure you know what you're getting into. What we're going to do is start meeting with you over the next number of days and weeks and whatever, and we'll let you know what's really happening here, and then you can make your decision. Ever seen or heard of that? I believe so. You are not normal. (laughs) (laughs) I have never seen such a thing. Anybody raise their hand, they want to be saved. People are like, get them up to the front. Fire up the baptismal. We got to get this guy in here. Right? They don't care. The guy could have no clue what he's doing. They invite him right in. So let tell me about your story. If you've seen this, this is good news. Tell me about it. Um, I guess I'm thinking of examples where there is some knowledge among the community, you know, church, assembly, whatever, that this person is weighing out this decision to cross the line, cross the veil over into accepting Jesus, following him. Oh, so they're already they're, counting the cost. Okay, I, I see what you mean there. Um, well, and then I also see examples that you're describing where, like, they initially have that, like, no barriers, no boundaries. If you even have an inkling, you come down and we get you to say yes, and then after that, you know, they, they have that formal slash informal structure where like okay you need to meet with us so that you know what it is that you just now signed up for or that we that we beckoned you to sign up for yeah it's like reading the terms and conditions after signing it you know kind of like that yeah we're gonna pass this law and then we can find out what's in it (laughs) yeah it's it's ridiculous so the, the thing is, they need to be able to count the cost. A person decides to become a disciple of Jesus, so they need to understand, and now in the context of what we've been reading, they need to understand that they're being asked to prefer and prioritize God and Jesus above all else. They need to know that they're about to count their life over and only live for Him. They need to know that it's the highest of all high callings. They need to know that they are required to be immovable in their faith, regardless of circumstance. And of course, just to say it again, we're not suggesting that anybody has to be perfect, but that this has to be, you know, your norm. This has to be, if anybody were to to know you, they would know this about you, even if they saw you fail. They need to know that there is a high cost and that they are able and willing to pay it for the rest of their lives. And this, I, you know, Samuel, have you ever, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. People, they want to get bored again, and what do you hear? Just say this prayer with me. Believe mm-hmm. in your heart. Boom, you're in. This flies in the face of every statement that's even anything like that. It just, it's, it's crazy. Now, if this wasn't an audio podcast, everybody else could see it. But Samuel, I'm going to show you my surprised face. <laughs> right? Now, again, only God 
can judge. I'm not the guy. You're not the guy. This is God's domain. But I'm just going to say, there is concern in me that there are going to be many, many surprised faces at the end of days. They're going to think they're in, but nobody ever told them the cost. They never counted the cost. They never paid the cost. They didn't do any of it. They just said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And, you know, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but it's a concern for me. I think it's a big deal. Anyway, one final thing. There is a calling that these people had before them in Jesus' day that we simply don't. They, they could have literally left everything and followed him. You know, literally. I mean, his disciples did for a few years. We can't do that. Jesus isn't around. So there, there is a difference there. And we have to understand this, this high calling. It's the same high calling, but we need to understand it for us within the context of our day-to-day lives. And we see this actually in the New Testament after Jesus's ascension. That that one specific calling, the one that they could do where they were following Jesus literally, was no longer available because he had died and he ascended. And so the same requirements and expectations, they were walked out in the midst of their lives. The discipleship was infused into every area of their lives as opposed to them walking away from every area of their life to follow. So we follow by actually bringing it all into our life. The important thing is that we don't, we don't use this as some sort of excuse to diminish the high cost of discipleship by acting as if these parables aren't really relevant to us because, you know, Jesus isn't actually walking around in the flesh anymore. He is not, but the same high calling, the same, it's, it's all there. It's the same. Yeah. And what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to diminish those that left everything and literally followed Jesus while he was on the earth. But in some ways, this this second alternative that you described that includes all of us now living here. I mean, even like you said, after the ascension until now, that calling in some ways feels maybe even more challenging than those who made that choice to quit everything else and, you know, follow Jesus around full time. Like in our situation, it's like, okay, I have this life, especially for those who started following, you know, Jesus when they were a full-grown adult and having all kinds of contextual circles that they now have to deal with. It's like, I have this life, this job, this relationship, um, this hobby, and I have to find a way to incorporate God, weave it, weave God in the midst of all of that to where he's the the lifeblood, the, the main vein among yeah. all of that. Like, yeah. that is... That is a tough thing to navigate and maneuver compared to saying, like, you know, take all, take my house, take my car, take my job. Like, I'm, I'm just following this guy around. Yeah, and and I don't know how literally this is true, but certainly the way it feels, the way we perceive it is, hey, 
for us to do this, it actually starts out with a, a measure of faith, a, a, an act of faith that they never had to, to do or, or experience. I mean, he was there. They could see the guy, hear the guy. We don't get that. And yet, we, it's the same calling. So yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's a big deal. It's a hard thing. It's a bit of a uh, soft, uh, tender spot for me that, that, you know, that so many people get, they're just ripped off. They're gypped. They're cheated out of what I understand being a disciple of Christ to be. And they you know, I, I use this term and it sounds derogatory because, well, mostly it is, but all they've really done is joined a social club mm. and, and it hurts me yeah. knowing that that is a thing and that I want so much to change it. I, I want people to know the cost, to, one, to know what they're signing up for, but number two, so that they can go for it. I think that if more and more people actually understood what was required of them. Again, not that you are effective for your own salvation, but how how it is you are accepting this or whatever. I, I think I think more people would do it if they understood that this this was how it works. This is how it should look. But they never hear it. And it just makes me sad. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do one more little bit here, because uh, it's short, and I think we can slip it in under time. That We're still in Luke 14. Uh, the last two verses, 34 and 35, say this. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. So, continuing with the theme of counting the cost, Jesus turns to another ordinary example. All right, everybody knows what salt is and and that it's useful for many, many things. And I think, logically, everyone would know that if salt somehow stopped being salty, whatever that means, if it could do that, well, then it would be useless. I mean, what's the point of salt if it's no longer salty? Similarly, if a person becomes a disciple, and now what we're going to say is that they are salt or they are salty. They've become a disciple. But then they give up or walk away. They return to their old ways or or maybe they're just passive in their walk. They're not actually doing the kingdom, if you know what I'm saying. Well, now that represents them no longer being salty. So then if if that is a person, a disciple, well, then they also are useless. They're good for nothing and simply thrown away. Now, Samuel, how literally should we be taking this? I I hope not too literally, because that sounds doom and gloom to some degree. Yeah, I I think 
Well, we could say we should take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but here's the thing. Of course, it's not just, you know, black and white literal. It's not that kind of thing. But what I, what I mean is it it's not an unrecoverable error. If if you go back to your old ways or you're just passive or you guess what? You're not salty, you're good for nothing. You may as well be thrown away. But that doesn't have to be the end of your story. It's not an unrecoverable error. However, it is a very real concern. And I think it's a very real warning, just as a lot of the stuff we've been reading in these earlier verses. Jesus wants his hearers, I think, to be at least a little bit kind of shocked, a little bit concerned. Maybe you know, this this idea in their head that their life is on the line. And similarly, when we read this, I think we should be maybe just a little bit shocked. Maybe, maybe we should be concerned because guess what? Our life is on the line. He's using some extreme language, good for nothing, thrown away, because he knows they're, they're not really hearing him. At least they haven't been. Maybe they are now. I don't know. He, he wants those with ears to hear. And we should say those who are willing to hear what he's actually saying. Okay, this was just as true for the people in his audience that day as it is for us today. Unbelievers, those who think they're believers or are believers, whatever. I, I shouldn't, you know, I don't know, whatever your state is. But it's true for, for all of us. Do you have ears that hear? Really? Are you hearing him? Really? It's an important question to ask ourselves. I'm not, you know, making a statement about anybody. I don't know you. I don't know your life, whatever. But we've just a lot of stuff that we've gone through today. There was some from the last podcast. I mean, it makes it sound like, wow. Being a Christian's kind of a big deal. I mean, I you know, a lot of the story that people hear is it, it's just all uh, candy and puppy dogs and, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, just believe in him. You get to go to heaven. Oh, isn't this a wonderful life? Hey, guess what? This is hard. Mm. This is a big deal. Your life's on the line. If you're not up to, you know, the task, you're good for nothing and thrown away, Right. I mean, these are hard things to hear, and, and the, the, the purpose of them is to make you think and truly assess your state. And I, I don't know. I think it's good. I think it's important. It's hard to hear, but got to hear it. Yeah. Oh, for this to be two verses, so many things are swirling around in my mind right now after everything that you said. Um, <laughs> oh, where do I start? Um, well, Let's start with the two things that I've thought about the most, and then we'll go with the wacky stuff at the end to end on. Um, Your take on this not being an unrecoverable error, um, this is my inner chemistry mind at play here, and this illustration might fall through, like, when Jesus is saying, like, salt is good, but if it has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? Like, I'm I'm not poking holes at what Jesus is saying at all. 
but I'm just thinking like in first century Judaism and their culture, they were using salt, the mineral to preserve things like raw meats, cured meats. Uh, they would, they, they put it on foods for enhanced flavor. So it was in like crystalline form. And I'm just thinking like one example of a way that salt in that role in that context loses its saltiness is uh, what happens if you pour a bunch of water on it? Well, it dissolves. Like after that, can like in in their culture, like can they find a way to get it back into its crystalline form to to use in those examples? Like probably not if they weren't like knew a lot about the science and stuff. But now, like you could say, oh, all I gotta do is boil the water, uh, you know, off and return that salt back to its crystalline form. So. All that being said, that was just a nerdy way of saying, like, don't feel like that if you've messed up, if your life is lacking in saltiness, that you are good for nothing and that God, you know, doesn't still have a purpose for you and that you can't turn things around because (laughs) there's a chemistry example to show it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would have known just from evaporation. I mean, my goodness, they had the the salt sea over there, you yeah. know, they knew all that, but yeah, I, and that's good. And what's funny is I actually looked at it a different way. I'm like, okay, so what is salt? That's like NACL or something, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm looking at that and I'm going, well, what if you had NACL, but it didn't taste salty? You had NACL and it, it didn't preserve meat or it didn't melt ice or, you know, all the things that we know. Mm. How weird would that be? Is it, is it still NACL? And and the way that we look at it from a chemistry perspective, we would go, well, no, it can't be. Because if it's NACL, it's going to be salty. It's going to preserve meat. It's going to, right? It's going to do those things. And so is there a way to, to, you know, create salt? And again, back to your, you know, chemical stuff, I'm sure somebody knows how to do that. You know, the, the, the atoms join together or whatever it is they do, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a thing. So yeah, I, it's, uh. In a sense, the idea of salt losing his saltiness, we could say, is an absurd thing. And so similarly, it would be absurd for a disciple to stop being salty. Mm. But again, just because you do doesn't mean you can't like somehow get back on track. I don't know if that's helping. Yeah, in some ways, I feel like you just walk chemistry circles all over me, and that's what I do for a job. So I, <laughs> I liked what you you brought to the table, <laughs> Rabbi Paul. Old man school. Yeah. Um, but along those same lines, like that example of putting salt in water, like thinking how precious of a of a commodity salt was for that culture and thinking about if you had a household a family that had salt that they were relying on to cure and preserve their meats for the upcoming year or whatever and they lost that that would be in and like the equivalent of like an emotional loss to them because of their dependence on it and i wonder if jesus was kind of getting at that kind of reaction by using salt to say like if if people have that kind of reaction with a with a mineral in their culture, how much more colvacomer is there an emotional loss whenever something 
as valuable as a human being leaning into their, you know, true image bearing qualities, like ceases to do that for God's purposes. Like it, it pains, it, it disappoints, it makes God sad. Like he's losing that salt that he wants to use to preserve the world. Yeah. Um, and, and he wants that to, Jesus is wanting to evoke those emotions to convict these people who are listening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. That's good. Really good. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to ask was, is there a, another potential interpretation is, could Jesus possibly, especially the phrase in verse 35, like, it's good for nothing, and then the last part, it is thrown away, could he be alluding to the end of times, like the judgment where, like, when people are given an account for their lives and God's looking at them, it's like, like, ultimately, was your life salty or not, like? Did, did you showcase those qualities of mind to me as your God and your fellow neighbor? And like from my understanding of Jewish eschatology, like at the end, if you're not in the book of life, you're going to cease to exist. Like you're going to be, you know, thrown away. It's not eternal torment. So I, I, I don't know if Jesus was getting that heavy eschatological in this example or not, but I just wanted to bring it up as you know, possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if he was bringing that in here at this point or not, uh, but I mean, it's a very reasonable image. I mean, the, the idea of being, you know, if you're in the book of death, you're cast into the lake of fire and everything else goes with, it's just bad. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a reasonable image to associate with his wording here, but uh, yeah, his, his, uh, Intention, I can't guess, but uh, yeah, so it's it's another good one, Samuel. I like it. Yeah. I like it. That's all. Um, here, here you are getting us at a good point to end on time, and I make us late. <laughs> That's all right. We can do the uh, what was it, Looney Tunes? That's all, folks. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at our website, www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to send us any comments or questions you may have at our email address, okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.